0: So us open our Bibles to the book of Daniel. I'm going to teach through the entire book of Daniel this morning. Oh, you think I jest? I do not jest. This will be sort of an introduction, but also along with an introduction, we will go through chapter 1. Chapter 1 really is an introduction, and chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, but chapters 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. And then when you get from chapters 8 to 12, it switches back to Hebrew. Now, there is a reason for this, that Daniel reverts back to Hebrew to survey the future of the Jewish nation under Gentile dominion. Chapters 2 through 7 deal with the future course that he lays out with incredible accuracy the world-dominating empires that have existed, um, Egypt being the first one. And very quickly, what I'm going to do is take you through the book of Daniel. What you have in Daniel 1 is, what we'll see, is there was three attacks by King Nebuchadnezzar, and in the first siege, he took Daniel. And um, he he took um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah also went with that one. And uh, they are taken there, and that will be our study this morning, chapter 1. Because of them being singled out as being ten times wiser than all the other wise men in Babylon, we have in chapter 2 King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream that cannot be interpreted by all of his soothsayers and astrologers. And Daniel is able to interpret to dream, thus elevating him from a prisoner from Jerusalem to the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire maybe the world has ever known. Under Nebuchadnezzar, that would have been Babylon. And now Daniel in chapter 2 is going to be elevated to second in command. Chapter 3 is sort of a, a chapter... Of rebellion by Nebuchadnezzar, he's he's overwhelmed by the accuracy of Daniel's interpretation of the dream, but it means that he is going to be replaced by another country. It'll be inferior to his kingdom, which is a head of gold. He'll be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is a chest of silver, as gold is in as silver is inferior to gold, so the Medo-Persian empire will be inferior to the Babylonians. So God has to deal with him. And um, as a result of this, we have Shadrach, their names are being changed once they get to Babylon, and now um, we find that Daniel's friends are named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Abednego. And basically, we have a charge to bow to an image. And if you don't bow, you're killed. And one of the reasons we're teaching Revelation and Daniel together is when you begin to see the connections, it's really overwhelming. And here's just one of them right right here. If you don't bow down, that's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is... Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by the God of heaven. He goes crazy for seven seasons. I don't know if that's seven years or just seven seasons of time, like spring and summer and so on and so forth. But for seven years, he he goes wacko. He lives out in the wild. His hair grows long. He has long tallions. And he's humbled. And he comes to his senses. And in chapter 4, you have the most powerful planet the most, most powerful man on the planet, <laughs> giving his personal testimony, how the God of heaven um, is going to humble him. And um, I guess it could be summed up in the last verse of chapter 4 by saying, and those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. So here, he, the most powerful man in the world is giving his personal testimony, in Daniel chapter 5, we're introduced to Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. And he mocks God by bringing out and um, basically having an orgy and a drunken party while he's actually being um, surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. And this is a famous chapter where in A hand appears, and there's a writing on the wall. That's chapter 5. In that night, um, Belshazzar was killed, and we have now a change from the Babylonians, just like was foretold would happen in chapter 2. The Medo-Persian Empire, in this case Darius, in chapter 6, is now uh, the power that will be reigning. When we get to chapter um, four, uh, uh, 6 here, when we get to chapter 7, basically it's a repeat of chapter 2. It tells the same story about the empires that are going to come, only gets more detailed, and it begins to tell us here about the Ancient of Days coming, and him establishing his own kingdom. And it also gives us a little bit of insight into the Antichrist, which is also going to tie into the book of Revelation. Now, when we get into chapter 8, up till this time, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, that's all been written in Aramaic. Why? Because it deals with Gentiles. But now we're back in chapter 8, it's going to be dealing again with Israel, And so it goes back to Hebrew from 8 through 12. And it talks about the the male goat here and the little horn. And um, it is a prophecy concerning the next world raiding empire. Let me just go through them. You had Egypt being number one, the Assyrians number two. They fell in one night because, remember, one angel took out 185,000 before they destroyed Jerusalem, which caused Babylon to rise into power. Babylon fell in one night when um, Belshazzar was killed by Darius. So now we have the next empire rising, and he's identified here as the male goat, and that is a reference to um, Alexander the Great and um, the replacement That takes place there is the rise of um, um, his four generals that are mentioned in um, Daniel chapter 8. Now in Daniel chapter 9, to me, one of the most incredible um, prophecies in the Bible. It's been 70 years. Daniel was 17 when he went to Babylon. He has now been there for the full duration of 70, 70 years. And uh, the first 19 verses is nothing more than a prayer of sincere repentance because we deserved to be put into captivity. We deserved to be taken to the woodshed. Um, We did not listen to Jeremiah. We did not listen to Ezekiel. We listened to the false prophets. And Lord, we repent. And here we have the angel Gabriel appearing to Daniel and giving him Uh, the outline of God working with the nation of Israel for the next 490 years. And when we get to these, we'll get into a lot of detail. But in here, we have given to us the very day, we just celebrated Palm Sunday a while back, Daniel chapter 9 gives us to the day, when combined with Nehemiah chapter 2, the very day that Jesus Christ would be worshipped on Palm Sunday. That takes us to chapter 10, and it begins with Cyrus. And um, uh, we have an insight into the spiritual realm, what takes place when we pray. That We have an uh, outline here of um, Daniel praying, but he uh, doesn't eat for three weeks because his prayers aren't answered. He can't hear the voice of the Lord. And that's just not Daniel. Daniel's always in tune. And all of a sudden he's praying and nothing's happening. So we get to look behind the scene in chapter 10 and find out that the uh, prince of Persia was withholding the messenger that was sent to Daniel. And we'll have a whole Bible study that uh, um, Americans are so unaware of the spiritual war that is going on for the souls of men. But in chapter 10, we actually are, we get a slice of, of this period of time And um, an explanation of why it took 21 days. And during that time, Daniel didn't eat. He fasted. Lord, why aren't you talking to me? Why? Because of spiritual warfare going on in heaven. That's chapter 10. Now, when we get to chapter 11, we go now um, and we start getting into prophecies that um, will bring us to... Um, the Antichrist, specifically beginning in chapter 36, we have sort of a double prophecy here, one that's going to um, talk about the four generals of Alexander the Great. When he died, his dying words were, at the age of 32, who gets the empire? Who rules the world? He said, give it to the strong. Seleucus was one of the generals and there is a reference in here to Antioch Epiphanes, who goes into the temple and defiles it. And uh, we're going to have a picture here foretelling of a future king, beginning with verse 36, of the Antichrist. And here, another direct correlation between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, because that's exactly what happens in Revelation chapter 13. Chapter 12 is interesting to me, an interesting contrast, because on Wednesday, when we had our introduction to the book, we said that it literally means to unveil. When you're unveiling something, something is being revealed that otherwise has been sealed. So what we read in chapter 12, Daniel has received these visions and dreams with complete accuracy, that uh, he wants to know more. Lord, Lord, you've showed me. It's sort of like the disciples and the Lord doing a parable, and then the disciples saying, Lord, would you please explain what you just said? Well, now we are in the last chapter, chapter 12, and Daniel wants to know. and uh, But the Lord tells him, he says, um, No, Daniel, um, you're not going to know. As a matter of fact, uh, verse 4, shut up the words of the book until the time of the end. In in other words, seal them. So in Daniel, we have the sealing of these because they will not be understood until the end. And at the end, um, it tells us many will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Well, people are running to and fro. We're going to have people coming from all over the country this Thursday, running to and fro. Most of us have smartphones or um, gadgets that that we would have dreamed of having before. So the book of Daniel is one that is, um, it is the prophetic book in the Old Testament as revelation is to the book in the New Testament. Let's go back to chapter 1. I told you I'd teach through the whole book. I just did. And you doubted. Daniel is so accurate with the Bible prophecies that the critics challenge it because they would have to admit that God supernaturally reveals things to men before they happen. And sometimes it will take hundreds if not thousands of years for the the prophecy to be fulfilled. And they simply can't handle that because they don't believe in miracles or that God would speak. So as a result of that, the book of Daniel has been a battlefield between conservative and liberal scholars for years. Much of the controversy has to do with the dating and the writing of the book. There's a guy's name here I can't pronounce, Paparphiae. He was a heretic in the third century AD. He declared the book of Daniel was a forgery written during the time of Antioch Epiphanes and the Maccabees, which would be right around 170 BC. That's almost 400 years after Daniel. So this guy said Daniel only knew this stuff because he's writing history. However, the very interesting thing is in that the Septuagint the Greek version of the Old Testament was translated before the time of Antioch Epiphanes, and it contains the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is the key to understand other scriptures. For example, the Lord quotes it on the Olivet Discour- Discour- Discourse, quoted uh, only from, not only from the book of Daniel, he talks about it in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Here's the Lord himself confirming um, the abomination of desolation which would be taking place yet in the future. The Apostle Paul refers to Daniel. And with without Paul's, um, uh, with his revelation of the man of sin, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.3, needs Daniel's account of amplification and clarification. What Paul tells us just a little bit, Daniel gets into a whole half of chapters and sometimes a whole chapter given to one, one verse in the New Testament. I like to say you will not understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel. And that is why we're putting them together. This morning is sort of an introduction of what brings us to this point. We've been studying the book of Ezekiel. We've been studying the book of Jeremiah. If we would sum it up, the children of Israel had committed more idolatry and sin than the people that were before them. The Lord raised up Jeremiah and Ezekiel with one message that you're going to be spending the next 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Now this didn't happen just with one siege against the city. The first one happened during the the reign of a a man named Jehoiakim, uh, which actually he called Eliakim too. The sad thing is he had a godly father named Josiah. It was during his reign that Nebuchadnezzar first came against Jerusalem. The year was about 606 B.C., and he took the city in about 604 B.C. The city was not destroyed, but the first group of captives were taken to Babylon, and among these were Daniel and his three friends and literally thousands of others. So the first time he came, he sort of took the cream of the crop. And this is when Daniel, at the age of 17, would have taken. Now, Nebuchadnezzar again laid siege against Jerusalem, and once more Jerusalem was not destroyed, but the king and his mother... And all of his vessels of the house of the Lord were taken away to Babylon uh, along with an even larger group of captives. And evidently among the latter group was Ezekiel. Now Ezekiel was in Babylon ministering to the captives. Jeremiah was staying in Jerusalem trying to fight off the false prophets. The false prophets were saying, everything's cool, don't worry about a thing. And... um, Ezekiel and Daniel were saying exactly the opposite. That brings us to the third and final siege. And with this one, the king's name is Zedekiah. He was the uncle of Jeconiah, was subsequently made king. He also rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, but this time Nebuchadnezzar came against the city. He destroys the temple. He burns Jerusalem. The sons of Zedekiah were slain, killed in his presence, and then his own eyes were put out. So he had his sons killed in front of him, and then they cut out his eyes because that's um, the last thing that um, Nebuchadnezzar wanted in that king's head. Uh, Along with that, he went into uh, captivity from 588 or 587. All this, by the way, was a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, Jeremiah 25. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel had told the people that the false prophets were wrong and that Jerusalem would be destroyed. These two men just happened to be the ones that were right. Now, the first attack, let's go to chapter 1 and we'll read verses 1 through 7 that deals with this first siege. Now, it's the third year in the reign of Jehoiakim. He's the king of Judah. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hands and some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, just to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish. Uh, He wanted them to be good-looking and gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another name for a Babylonian. And I'm going to stop right there and let you know that this is a fulfilled prophecy. If you look in your side margin, it'll read Isaiah chapter 39, verse 7. And um, let me just set this up a little bit. This would have been the time... Where Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. And he says, Hezekiah, put your house in order. The Lord's taking you home. You're going to die. And he turns around and walks away. This is when um, Hezekiah turns to the wall. He's on his bed, begins to pout. And he says, oh, Lord, don't you remember all the good things that I did for you? I was faithful and um, didn't compromise with your ways, and so on and so forth. And uh, basically, the Lord comes back to him. He says, okay, that's your prayer. If you want to live? I'll give you 15 more years. Well, whenever the Lord speaks to us and he tells us something, I think his, his words um, are for a purpose. And the question is, would it have been better for Hezekiah to have just accepted, it's your time, I'm bringing you home, or to beg, please just let me live a little bit longer. Um, In this case, the answered prayer, only two major things happened in the next 15 years. He gave birth to one of the worst kings that Israel ever had, which would never have been born. And secondly, after his recovery, the word got out. The king that was supposed to die made it all the way up to Babylon. And they said, well-wishers with gifts and get-well-soon cards and the whole nine yards. And he's feeling so good, he feels like showing off a little bit. And so he shows the men from Babylon all the treasures of Jerusalem, takes him to the temple. And Isaiah sees the guys going back to Babylon. He says, um, Hezekiah, what do those guys want? Oh, they just were glad I'm getting better. What else did you want? What did you show them? Well, I showed them everything. What do you mean everything? I mean everything. And so I'm quoting now from Isaiah 39, verse 7, because what we just read is a prophecy. The first four verses of Daniel 1 is a prophecy that Isaiah is going to give to Hezekiah. You got your 15 years, but now this is what's going to happen. I'm quoting from Isaiah 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Listen to this message from the Lord of heaven's army. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasure stored up by your ancestors until now, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your very own sons will be taken into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve at the palace of the Babylonian king." It was a prophecy, and what we're reading it is fulfillment right here in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. And the king, now they're there, appointed for them a daily portion of the king's delicacies, of the wine which he drank, and then three years of training for them so that at the end of time they might serve before the king. Now from among these were those of the sons of Judah, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But he changed their names because he wants to change them. He changes their names, and the chief of the eunuchs gave uh, names to Daniel, uh, Belteshazzar, to uh, Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. He gave them the names of their gods with the purpose of trying to change them from being Jews but to turn them into Babylonians. And then in the second um, part of this, we have verse 8 through 16 and we have the word but, but Daniel. Daniel purposed it in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's delicacy, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now let's just stop here and read what's, what's the, prop, the problem is. I'm quoting from Leviticus. The word um, um, delicacies in the translation uh, can easily mean food, or meat. And um, in Leviticus 11 verse 44, this was the law. says, for I am the Lord your God, you must consecrate yourself and be holy, because I am holy. You will not defile yourself with any of these small animals that scurry along the ground. For I am the Lord, the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy because I am holy. These are the instructions regarding the the land animals, birds, marine creatures, and animals that scurry along the ground. And by these instructions you will know what is unclean and clean, and which animals may be eaten and which may not. Daniel, being brought up in the ways of the law, understood what, what we would call today what's kosher and what's not kosher. And he looked at the menu, and there wasn't anything that was kosher on the menu. And for Daniel to eat of of this, he would have been defiling himself according to the Levitical law. Meat here can be translated food, and this, of course, was the diet of the pagans, which would have been offered to their gods. It would be considered unclean. And remember that Daniel was a Jew and was under the Mosaic law and they had been told not to eat certain meat, certain fowls, and certain fish. Daniel was not trying to win here a popularity contest. He knew he was pushing against the most powerful man in the world by asking if he could eat his own food. He wasn't attempting to please Nebuchadnezzar. His decision did not reflect the modern softness of compromise, which we find all around us today, nor was it um, a dictate by the false philosophers in my generation growing up. It was how to win friends and influence people (laughs) and the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. This is a whole different spectrum. Instead of wanting to join them, compromise uh, for the sake of of uh, not causing conflict, that's not Daniel. I've entitled the morning's message, No Compromise. So when we get to this portion here, Daniel considers this. This is something I simply can't do. And verse 9 says, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief eunuch. Looking forward to meeting Daniel. And... um, I'll just go on from there. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Look, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should we see your face looking worse than the young men who are your age? You would put my head in danger. I'd be in trouble. If you don't eat well, you're not going to look well, and it's my neck that's on the line here. And so Daniel challenges him in verse 11 and said, to the stewards whom the chief of the eunuch had set over Daniel, Hananel, Michel, and Azariah, he says, okay, please test your servants for 10 days. Let's put it to the test. And give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our countenance be examined before you and the countenance of the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacy and do as you see fit. So deal with your servants. And so he said, "Hmm, sounds fair enough. So he consented with them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. So Daniel and his three buddies ate vegetables and drank water, and the other guys, they ate of the king's delicacies. At the end of the ten days, their countenance appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king's delicacies. So here we have no compromise. I want you to turn with me at this point and start making personal applications to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Let's try to bring it up to current events. Just the first two verses. I like to, We don't use the word beseech today. We just we use the word beg. So he's saying, I beg you. This is what Paul's saying. I beg you guys. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He's asking us here to give ourselves completely to the Lord, just like you would put a sacrifice on it, and that sacrifice is killed. Now, the only problem with a human sacrifice is it has a tendency to crawl off the altar whatever it wants to. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Here we are, Lord. I give myself freely. I die today until I get off the altar. He goes on to say, once you're there, and then he says, this is a reasonable thing to do. In light of all that the Lord has done for me, and in light of all that he's done for you, this is just a very, very reasonable thing to do, to give ourselves to him. And then he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable perfect will of God. And here's the litmus test. And that is, who is conforming who? Here's Daniel. What's the first thing they do? They want to conform him, change his name, change his diet to their world. And Daniel says, I won't do it. Now Paul says, we as Christians, because of what Jesus has done for us, very reasonable, that he laid down his life so that we could have life, it's a reasonable thing to say, Lord, here's my life. What do you want to do with it? And he says, don't let this world that we live in conform you. Why? First John, he who loves the world does not have the love of the Father in him. Well, the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things can can conform a person. And Paul's saying, I beg you, don't let that do it. Let this book do the transformation. And the the litmus test of just to see how you're doing is as a Christian, number one, do people know you're a Christian? And number two, uh, who is influencing you? As a Christian, are you being influenced by the world? Or as a Christian, are you influencing them? Now, in this case, Daniel refused to compromise. And Paul is making, I think, exactly the same statement. I'd like to address this litmus test on two different uh, levels this morning. One doctrinally and one personally. Uh, First of all, doctrinally. We're warned by Paul in the times that we live in Second Timothy 4, 3. says, the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, tell me what I want to hear. And um, don't tell me what I don't want to hear. Um, I was riding in the church this morning and um, the banner on um, a local church, the final part said, um, um, the final word is this message is basically a self-help message for you. Whenever I find a, a book that says how to be a better you or anything like that, and the emphasis is on me, you, or I, it's contrary, because we're, we're told to what? Deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow the Lord. But today, people don't want to hear that sound doctrine. Tell us something we want to hear. Titus nine hold fast the faithful word that has been taught that we may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, this is going to cause friction, If you say, um, uh, put the picture up on the screen of, uh, well, let's start with what's happening in in our own movement with uh, the picture of the ecumenical guys at Saddleback with Rick Warren. So the one on the right is Brian Brodersen. Um, He has just caused the major split over the last year at our Calvary Chapel movement by wanting to be more ecumenical. Um, We had a strong stand against Rick Warren and his ecumenical ways. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. It depends who he's talking to at the time. Um, The people on stage here are all part of what I call the road to Rome. And the main... uh, people up there is Rick Warren in the middle, Brian Broderson on the right. And then uh, Kevin Kane is a Catholic bishop of Orange County. And the rest of them is a hodgepodge of different ecumenical churches, all wanting to get together for the sake of love and unity. Well, Dwight, isn't that what being a Christian is all about? Aren't we supposed to love one another as Christians? Yeah, we are. But not when it gets to the point of doctrine. If there's a doctrine that says there's many roads to Christ or that I want to join with people that completely have another gospel and Roman Catholicism and um, um, the other ones that are represented here are on their way to Rome. Here's a picture of Rick Warren uh, shaking hands with the Pope. And just so... Um, I think pastors from the pulpit today are afraid to do this because they're, they're afraid to lose tithe money or people or whatever. But they're afraid to let you know. They'll say, well, Rick Warren is a Christian, and he believes the gospel. And you know what? That's true. But that's only telling you part of the story. Rick Warren is a strong advocate of contemplative prayer and encourages pastors to use centering and breathing prayers. Uh, He's signed on to a common word between us that seeks common ground between Muslims and Christians. He gave the invocation at the presidential inauguration in 2009, praying to Isa, not the Jesus of the Quran. Now, the Jesus of the Quran is not the Jesus of the Bible. Good place for an amen. But that's who he prayed in. And if you don't have a problem with that, then you should have a problem with that. But it's going to cause friction, Dwight, and it's going to make people feel uncomfortable. So be it. My Bible says that Jesus says, don't think I've come to bring peace. I haven't. I've come to tell the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only way to get to heaven. Period. And when you do that, it brings a sword and it causes division, even in your own household. There'll be mothers against their daughters, there will be sons against their dads. And um, we say, well, that's not a very loving thing to say from the pulpit. No, but it's true, and it's from the word of God. And we dare not compromise in the same way that Daniel dare not compromise with what the word clearly said about um, the Levitical teaching. He promotes, um, Rick Warren promotes on the speaker's corner, the Islamic Society of North America, an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, and a financier of the Hamas terrorist organization. I hope you got that one. He supports the work of Tony Blair, uh, ex-prime minister, in his global spiritualization movement. He supports Catholics Come Home campaign. Now, Tony Blair is a big player on the world scene right now. When he left office, he converted to Roman Catholicism, and he openly states that I have one goal, and that is for a one-world religion, and um, he is um, totally uh, in bed with Tony Blair on this project. In spite of photo evidence, uh, Warren denies his involvement in King's Way, which is a bridge-building movement with Muslims at Saddleback. He's the creator of the controversial Peace Plan, P-E-A-C-E Plan. As part of the Peace Plan, his top mission, mission's pastor was photographed teaching that Muslims do not have to convert to Christianity to be saved. We call it Chris Law. And there are churches in the valley here that hold to it and teach it. Um... He was the keynote speaker in 2015 at the uh, Global Alpha Course Conference. Anglicans, Catholics, Charismatics, and everyone else who takes Alpha. Please pick up Mary's track on it. Get educated on what these things really are. Uh, he is now on K-Wave. That is Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And... The ones that were one guy that um, John Randall gave a Bible study on women in the pulpit. Brian's encouraging women in the pulpit. And one Calvary Chapel pastor gave a Bible study of why they shouldn't biblically. And he was removed from K-Wave the very next week. Well, who they put on, I don't know if it was in his place, but now they have Rick Warren on K-Wave. And um, um, he's... He's done several interviews on calvarychapel.com, and he's gathered with the Pope at the Vatican along with Russell Moore, Muslims, and Mormons to promote unity around family issues called Pope Francis, our Pope. Now, why am I getting sidetracked with all this? When we get to the book of Revelation, what we're watching happen, even in the Calvary Chapel movement, is a move towards a one-world religion. Catholics come home. You guys, don't be so dogmatic with your doctrine. It causes division. It makes people feel uncomfortable. Well, Jesus said the right way is very narrow. It's very, very straight. Matter of fact, it's difficult. And few there will be that will find it. Do you know that in the last days, there will be few Bible-believing, non-compromising Christians? Good place for an amen. We know it's true. And at the same time, um, the easy way is to compromise with doctrine and broad is a way that leads to destruction and the Bible says many will be who find that. And the main reason people are falling into it is their lack of the knowledge of the book that you hold in your hand. They've gotten away from this book and they've replaced it with doctrines of Ben and having people tell them what they want to hear. Go to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3, verses 8 through 12. Daniel is not in his friends. Daniel's not in Daniel chapter 3, and I can't wait to get there because I believe there's a reason he's not mentioned, just his buddies. Well, here, the the image is raised, and um, if you don't bow down to the image, you will be killed. Let's pick it up in verse 8. The command was when the the music begins to play, everybody bows down to the golden image. Verse 8, Therefore, at that time, certain uh, Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, king, uh, make a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, they shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fire. And there there are these certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not uh, paid due regard to you they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set before them. They refused to compromise. Why? Again, it gets back to the the word of God. It would have been easy. I like their attitude. And they told the king, now I want to teach on chapter 3. <laughs> and they said, sorry, we, we can't do that. And um, yeah, our God can actually deliver us from your furnace. But even if he doesn't, and I like that, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. Oh, you got to like these guys. Why didn't they do it? Because of the word of God. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, Or that is in the water or under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now imagine your Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, bow down or die. What verse do you think is going through their head? Well, they could—they stood their ground. They did not compromise because they had it in their head. So the best thing that we can do is be fully equipped. There's a reason that this book is called a sword. It's an offensive tool. The shield of faith is another issue. The sword is the word of God. And what these guys are, they're just taking the sword out and saying, sorry, we can't do that. Why? Because God's word tells us we can't. Let's make it even more personal at this point. Daniel was only 17 years old. He left home for the first time. He moved to Babylon. They changed his name, and they tried to make him conform to the ways of the world, or Babylon. And they tried to change him. But Daniel would not compromise. All right, what's going on today in our world? Well... um, Let me give a warning and some encouragement at the same time for those of you who have sons or daughters that are Daniel's age and are getting ready to leave home for the first time. And um, they're going to be going on to college. They're going to be entering an environment which will try to change them. Most um, professors in a lot of the colleges today want to know who the Christians are, and I've had people come up to me as Christians telling me that the first day of of class, the professor wanted to know who the Christians were. And then he says, by the time you're through with my class, you won't be. And he was just letting them know straight out. Well, at least he's honest. The other ones, that's their intention. But they're a little more subtle about it. But that's still their goal. So the... They are going to want to change you from the name of Christian to college student. Well, I grew up in Oshkosh as a non-believer. I couldn't wait to get out. I couldn't figure out why my buddies were spending thousands of dollars when they never went to class and all they did was party all day long and get loaded. Why, why spend the money? And um, I don't know about Appleton, but Oshkosh was known in college. It's just bar hopping. Basically, that's what we called it. We went from this bar to this bar to this bar to this bar, and we know all the bars in town. But um, we would watch people come in, young ones that were Christians. I remember one gal in particular well, that got just so sucked into it, and everything that she was brought up was destroyed within just the shortest period of time. Now, everybody here knows somebody that's going through what I, I'm talking about right now. Some of you are getting ready to enter into that environment when your whole life you've been brought up one way, and that being taken taken away. I remember the, the time one of the first times my mother got so upset with me. I came home from um, I was in high school, and I said, um, um, "I don't I don't believe in creation anymore, Mom." She said, "What?" No, I said. My science teacher explained the whole thing to me that that we all evolved over millions and millions and millions and. Years of time, and, and he explained it all very, very thoroughly. And she got upset. and by the way, that science teacher, he got saved, and he is in ministry today. <laughs> That's a good place to say, "Amen and even clap if you want to, because <laughs> it's very, very rare. But that was happening to me in high school. And I remember my, my mother sitting me down. I wasn't saved yet, and I bought it because he was a teacher. And so, um, if you're at that crossroads and you're leaving home, young people, please listen up, because you're going to be targeted. And the enemy's going to want to undo what your mother and father have been raising you all their life. You know, they've been asking for help in the Sunday school. Please, please take that to heart. Invest. Realizing that there's a real war going on. And if there's a need back there, then said, be like Isaiah. Lord, here I am, said me. I'll do it. If there's a need there, then let, let me help out. Uh, don't let that happen to you. Be a Daniel in that area. All right, that brings us to our text, which means we just started our Bible study. How about that? No, I'm just kidding. 17 to, um, back to chapter 1, our text. The result, did I make it through 16? Just in case I didn't, I'll read the last 15 and 16. At, at the end of the testing of 10 days, um, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and their wine and their drink, and they gave them vegetables. They passed the test. They looked better than the other guys. Now our text As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the kings had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like uh, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all manners of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in this realm. And thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So he's going to be there for the full duration of of this time now if in in this here is sort of a, a reward first samuel 220 tells us therefore the lord god of israel says indeed that your house and the house of your fathers and those who walk before me forever but now the lord said far be it from me for those who honor me I will honor them, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. What are these guys doing? They're honoring God by keeping his word. So what does God say he's going to do? Well, I'm going to honor them. By the end of chapter 2, Daniel's going to be the most sec, most powerful man on planet Earth because he would not compromise. And these uh, they were found ten times wiser Than all the rest of them. Because Daniel would not compromise, God raised him up. Go to chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is a God of gods, the Lord of kings, a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal a secret. And then the king promoted or honored Daniel, gave him many gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel petitioned the king, and he said, you know, I'd sort of like to have my buddies working with me. And so we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat at the gate Daniel did the influencing. Babylon didn't influence Daniel. Daniel influenced Babylon. Daniel purposed it in his heart. You see, it all begins in the heart of Daniel. He was not a papier-mâché. He had a heart. And his convictions came from his heart. That should be our experience also. We are captives in this world in which we live. Jesus said that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And he said you can't serve God in money. You can't do it both ways. However, whoever, however, we cannot serve God by following a set of rules. We must have purpose in our heart. Jesus said that it was out of the heart that the issues of life proceed the things that we put in our bodies are not the most important. Daniel purposed it in his heart that he would obey God's law given to God's people Israel. And this was his testimony. I will end by saying two things. Be a Daniel and don't compromise. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Art and Shirley, you snowbirds, good to have you back. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we do this sort of overview of the the book of Daniel, how can we not admire a man like this? Of course, I stole the title from Keith Green, a man I also admired as a musician, also a Jew, in his album, No Compromise. And, Lord, we live in a world that wants to conform us. But, Lord, let us know your word so well that we'll be able to smell a phony a mile away. And uh, help us not compromise with doctrine or in our personal lives. But let your word be the plumb line, the the defining factor of what we believe Uh, who we choose to associate with. And, um, Lord, help us compromise. We want to, Lord. We want to be like Peter, James, and John. We want to do the right things, but we confess that our spirit is willing, but all too often our flesh is weak. But, Lord, we want to. So this morning, in closing, I, I pray for those that are at the crossroads right now or maybe making a turn to go on to school. Lord, keep them. And may your word be tucked away in their heart. Protect them and do not let them be conformed to this world, but let them be transformed by the renewing of their mind. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.